Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I'm joined by James Rundle. Hey, I have a mic again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. we had some guests on and uh, we have some guests coming up for you, some good guests coming up for you in the next couple weeks. This week, we're just going to talk and uh, and full disclosure, I'm a little bit hungover, so I'm not even sure how this will go, but we'll see, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, going to be a short episode, guys. It's yeah. going to be fun. But this, uh, this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Yonkers Hop Runner IPA. Very, very good, actually. From the uh, Yonkers Brewing Company. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't been up there either. I've been to Yonkers a couple times, actually, just recently. I haven't been to brewing. Hmm. Anyway, um, let's start with news. Um, the, the big story for us this week, uh, Joe Gallagher, a reporter out in London, wrote an excellent piece uh, titled uh, Tech Releases Surge Ahead of Initial Margin Deadlines. So phase four and phase five of the initial margin requirements for non-clear derivatives are going to kick in in September 2019 and then September 2020. Um, And this will kind of bring in uh, more than 1,000 banks and asset managers with margin valuations exceeding uh, $850 billion, uh, because we don't use pounds here in America. In this country, we use dollars and not pounds. But um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe looked at some of the tech initiatives to help some, because these are smaller firms, right? So these are smaller firms that are going to be brought underneath this umbrella, right. and they're not quite equipped to be able to handle this stuff internally with their limited tech departments. Yeah, yes, precisely, yeah. And, and especially the phase five guys, because, you know, phase four... Their margin valuations are exceeding 850 billion. Phase five, it's nine billion. Um, so you're really getting everyone involved there. You know, the first three phases where you're sophisticated derivatives market participants. You know, your big major dealers, your asset managers who have hefty derivatives operations like your sure. Aberdeen standards and things like that. This is really kind of the uh, the guys who are just barely above hedging activity now and who, like you know, rightly so, haven't had to invest in sophisticated counterparty risk systems over the years or, um, you know, uh, substantial uh, margin calculation methodology systems and what have you. Um, And guys who, quite frankly, probably don't know an awful lot about the derivatives market, I guess, in terms of they tend to probably just go through their bank, their bank, they say, look, I want a contract on this for credit or I want something to hedge this for interest rates. And the bank goes, yep, cool, no worries, I'll write that for you. Um, You know, here's the terms and deal. We're not going to put it through clearing because it's not suitable for that because it's a custom product. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much where they leave it. We'll report for you and everything else. For the first time, these guys are now thinking, well, okay, I've got to be aware of like how much margin I have to exchange on the initial basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all the variation aspects that come into it as well later on for, for different um, rules. But, yeah, for these guys, it's a massive change. And, um, you know, it's also an opportunity, as we've seen in Joe's story, for a few of the big heavy hitters like the CME and for um, IHS Market and... Acadia Soft and, and, and to yeah. an extent is that to be really cashing in on it, I guess. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting pieces, so from Joe's article, uh, she spoke with a bunch of the, the players in the market that are going to look to help capture, you know, client flow, you know, just by being tech providers. Um, she spoke with uh, Nosheen Amir Ebrahimi uh, from IHS Market, and she said that uh, – if you look at the experience from phase one and two, they have taken any time between 18 to 24 months to get where they need to be in terms of compliance. And obviously these aren't as big and complex a firm, so that will help them in some ways, but also the they're unsophisticated as far as just not having the resources that 
you know, a massive, massive, you know, asset manager like a BlackRock, something like that. They don't have a compliance department like that. Um, There's probably one individual compliance person that maybe works with, you know, their, you know, their chief uh, operation, you know. Or it's outsourced to you. Yeah, or it's outsourced. So that will kind of, it's kind of one of those things that there are a lot of moving parts. Um, And like you said, if you don't have a big team on it, well, then you are going to look to have a vendor. So that's why, what was it, IHS Market and Acadia Soft, they kind of created a partnership for this, right? Um, it looks like ISDA's, um, is joining forces with uh, Linklater's, the law firm, uh, the European law firm yep. on this. Yep. Um, for the create utility, I think. Trioptima's uh, got their, um, their initial, margin, initial margin analytics tool. Yeah. Um, so it, this is just kind of something that in September this year and then September of next year, everybody's finally going to fall under this umbrella. So the time to start preparing is now. The conversations to start having with these vendor companies, I guess, is now. That's kind of the point yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, maybe a bit late, actually, for some of these guys. But again, you know, this isn't new. This has been around for years now. This is a post-crisis measure that was taken at the Basel um, and the IOSCO level. Um, so it's not something that's um, coming as a surprise to anyone that people have to do this. So really, you can argue that these firms should have been aware of it, or you can at very least argue that their banks or their dealers should have been making them aware of it in time. <coughs> The industry has a, a very much a predilection towards looking at these deadlines and then 12 months before going, we don't have enough time. No, oh, what was me? Yeah. Where did this come from? Um, the nice thing, I guess, for the uh, for the smaller firms, if you want to call it nice, it's probably not very much for them because they have to pay for it, is that as opposed to like a major multi-asset um, uh, you know, trading operation which operates globally, they can probably quite easily take an off-the-shelf solution like something from uh, CME slash Triana. Yeah. Or from again, not much know, customization again, needed, not, not much, a huge yeah. amount. Yeah, and they can also, uh, you know, probably benefit from the scale of their trading partners as well. I mean, guaranteed that the guys with the senior um, counterparties in the trade uh, on the sell side will have all of this stuff in place. So it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of them just say, like, just yeah, we can use the gateway to our technology yeah. to do this. Just give us the information, we'll put it in view. Yeah. Because the other way of doing this is it's all paper contracts, it's all you know, face to face negotiation stuff like that. If you can automate that, yeah, uh, yeah, the, there's a pain to kind of switch over to that, but in the long term, that's going to help, as we always talk about with automation, right? Well, yeah, and then there's been, I think, with this whole first the variation margin rules and now the initial margin rules, there was a bit of a repapering crisis going on, and it really exposed the weaknesses of having that system, I think, for the derivatives industry, where companies had to spend tens and hundreds of millions of dollars um, getting legal firms just to change little clauses in the contracts and the master agreements and what have you mm. at a very short space of time. And that actually was a crisis for them. That's the one thing where um, they weren't kidding about the scale, the challenge that they, they faced, and that was, I think, last year or a couple of years ago. Um, uh, it actually might have been around the time that Phase 1 was coming in for this. And so I think they're very much invested in moving away from that manual paper-based model and moving to this automated thing. Like the ISDA Create tool, for instance, is very much based around that, yeah. having some sort of digital documentation, um, and it's, I think it's an example of, you know, regulation forcing good change. I mean, yeah. you know, y- yes, people still like to deal with fax machines. Um, I was being told by contact not too long ago just about the scale of faxes that are still sent through their sort of back office sure. operations and were staggering. Um, and I know somebody ones, so. that works at a major, like one of the very, very biggest tier one banks. Yeah. And he was saying, he's like, listen, you don't even understand, like, 
there is still yeah we 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 spend a lot on technology but none of these systems talk to each other so at the end of the day there's still so much manual work that goes into this and it's like they're one of the biggest, biggest well, banks. And the, the aging workforce as well. As yeah. well. I think we're probably talking the same person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, people like to do it that way, but at the end of the day, you've got to roll the times, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, after all the pain that the guys, these guys went through in phase one and everything else, when they had to repaper everything, like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Like, your, you know, your $8 billion a year business or whatever it is in Notional is not worth us doing this. Like, yeah. you know. So you will comply with our way of doing it, which is doing well, it electronically. It's funny too, because like, this was a while back. I this was probably about two years ago. But I was speaking with somebody at uh, at one of the big Japanese banks working here in the U.S., and he created basically this Excel doc, you know, kind of mm. um, for I, I can't remember what even the but it was for some sort of regulatory purpose. Okay. And so we're having drinks, and he's just saying, like, he intentionally made it complex so that he knew that when he left the company, and he wasn't planning on staying there for a long time, that they would still have to freelance him in. So they intentionally made this a complex kind of thing (laughs) that got the job done. Because he knew that the bank wouldn't shift off just because it's complex. Well, it's the old, it's the old programmer's yeah. trick, isn't it? Just like, yeah, build your little back door and make it so you can exactly. do it. So they have to contract you yeah. after. And then it's like, and he's not even working in finance anymore. He's in a completely separate job. <laughs> and just until recently, uh, he was still just doing that on the side, just getting paid just to help them navigate through this thing that he I created. Know, it's, it's, it's a nice a, little racket, isn't yeah. it, if you can do it. That's, um, my, that's my job here at Waters, making yeah. the workflow so <laughs> complex that only I can navigate it. Yeah, I mean, listen. And when I finally, you know, get the courage and quit this damn job, you know, I'll still come back on as a freelance podcaster if well, you guys have need. to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, there's a reason why you're not letting me upload them, right? There's, yeah, exactly. You've got the passwords for SoundCloud. Um, um, also, from Joe's story, I did like, and just go a little bit back to the point we were just making for uh, Andrew Kaira um, from ISDA. I'm just nailing the names, I'm sure, today. Yeah. Uh, so he's director of product development at ISDA. Good co- quote here that kind of just encapsulates the challenge but or why firms are more ready for this though it should be noted that is that has a dog in this race um but the quote is uh, i don't think at the time in previous phases meaning uh the legal industry was ready to make the shift to an electronic form of negotiation with documentation the timing now can coincides with the regulatory push, but it also coincides with the fact that ISDA has published documents that made it allowable for us to do digitization. So, and that's a key piece. Is you can say yes, let's digitize things, but there is a framework, there is a foundational layer yeah. kind of that has to be put in place to kind of bring about some sort of standardization, I guess, that yeah. makes it more easily transferable. And ISDA has done that. You know, they've, they've removed the need for, like, data rooms, all the rest of it. They've got the tools, they've got the purse. And, and Nosh from uh, from I just Market is right as well. Just, you know, time is running out. So, yeah, got to get it done. All right. Yeah. So, again, uh, that's uh, Joe Gallagher. Uh, it's a really good piece. And so, Joe, so we talked a little bit just about the, the top layer stuff. Joe delves into the actual platforms that have been developed and what they do. Yeah. Um, gets into kind of the tech end, which uh, we do better than anybody else. Take out a subscription with us or a trial if uh, you don't have one. But uh, the story is tech releases surge ahead of initial margin deadlines. Something that you don't have to be a subscriber to read yep. is our cover stories. Our cover stories we always put in front because, you know, I mean, we, 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 we want to give you a taste. We want to give you a little hit of that uh, of that hair on before, uh, you know, we, give we it a make try, it fun. Give it a try, buddy. Yeah. Then bring your friends and come back. <laughs> so next time. the cover story um, 
for this was for the February issue, right? Or is this a January issue? Uh, this was the January issue. January issue, yeah. sorry. Uh, James profiled, uh, uh, was it New Frontier Advisors, which is run by Robert and Richard Michaud? Michaud. Michaud. Michaud, yeah. Michaud, okay. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Nailing the name, sorry. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why they're an interesting company? Because this yeah. was a very, very interesting. This wasn't necessarily a technology story as much as it was an investment theory story. And I, I really found this to be a quite interesting story about this move. And, and it helps to kind of underscore this move from active investment to passive investment. So yeah. why don't you talk a little bit about exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, there are a really interesting uh, pair of people, actually. And, and that was the thing. I set out to write a cover profile story and I ended up doing neither a Waters tech profile story or doing a person profile story or something yeah. kind of in the middle. Um, just purely because, um, so their PR guy got in touch a while back and said, oh, hey, look, you know, I represent these guys. They're quite interesting. You should look into them. And I did. Uh, the more I kind of looked into them, the more my head started to hurt at the back. And then eventually <laughs> that developed into a full blown migraine by, uh, by December the 20th when I was trying to wrap my head around the theories of Harry Markowitz and uh, modern portfolio theory. Uh, so no, so um, Robert and Richard Bichot, um, based in Boston, New Frontier Advisors, uh, like a very, very small quantitative asset management firm, really, When you're on, like, if you think about it in terms of what everyone else is doing, uh, but with a very distinct differentiating factor, which is that they've patented um, a form of portfolio optimization called Michaud optimization that kind of ro- builds on what's laid the foundation for modern asset management, does it very differently. Um, so to take it back, modern asset management is pretty much based on theories of Harry Markowitz. So back in the day, um, in the 1950s, stock selection was pretty much what's the best performing stock. Let's just pick that and buy loads of it and exclude everything else, mm-hmm. which inevitably leads to like dog runs and sort of you know people chasing and, and massive losses. What Harry Markowitz proposed was that um, in a paper called Portfolio Selection, Portfolio Selection in 1952, I think. Yeah. Um, so and he thought of this one afternoon while he was in the library of the University of Chicago. Um, just an incredibly um, talented and, and intellectual guy. Um, he kind of thought about how he can model investor behavior, and he realized that, you know, taking a very base level, everyone buys car insurance, right? Not just because it's a legal requirement, but because if you break your car, you want to have some insurance to back it up. Yeah. So therefore, the maxim that this implies is that it's not necessarily the expectation of profit that drives people's behavior. It's the the, um, the fear of and the risk of loss that mm-hmm. drives it at the end of the day. Um so if you mix your portfolio with not just the best performing stocks, uh, but you mix some, like kind of your risky assets like those with your risk less assets, um, you end up with a blend of stuff that eventually hedge your portfolio in multiple ways, and that's modern portfolio theory. Um, what Dick Michaud found um, when he was working at the Boston Company in the 1970s was that he was asked to model a European mutual fund, and um, so he put it through the Markowitz optimization machine. Um, very proudly took it back to his boss and said, you know, here's the results. And his boss looked at it and said, you know, Dick, you know, we're looking at this and it tells us we have to be 35% weighted for the Austrian capital market. And uh, he goes, is that right? And and, uh, and Richard Michaud goes, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. And he goes, but look, Dick, we can buy everything in the Austrian capital market. It doesn't work. Um, so what they realized was that uh, a lot of the foundation of the theory is based on was very information error sensitive in nature. So he went off and... Uh, wrote a paper about optimization, developed these theories, came back um, and published a book on it. Um, Harry Markowitz himself tested his own theories against uh, the Michelle optimization and found that in all the tests, Michelle optimization was the better way forward. 
they patented it and launched the firm. Um, that's okay, kind of that the, paper was the the, the Markowitz optimization optimization enigma is optimized optimal is that the one that that's you're the about? one yeah, yeah yeah and then they wrote uh, later on in, in the nineties nineteen ninety eight I think or ninety nine mm-hmm. um, they wrote a uh, Richard and, and Rob Michaud's son wrote a book called Efficient Asset Management which kind of laid this, all this out um, and it was second edition was published in two thousand yeah Lemel book Efficient Asset Management yeah. nineteen ninety eight it's it's kind of it's one of those topics that's a bit too complex to go into on a podcast uh, but it is a really fascinating um, journey it also brings in things like the common asset pricing model which he regards as being a wrong turn um, which the industry took and which much of the asset management industry is based off um, so his argument is that the reason why active management doesn't work and the reason why asset management technology is is broken is because it's based on a fundamentally flawed concept at the end yeah. of the day and it's a really interesting viewpoint um you know uh the, maybe the reason if you haven't heard of it is because you know they did take the decision to patent it rather than sort of start a hedge fund in secret or to release it into academia yeah. but it is sort of commonly accepted as being the way forward you know the the cfa institute teaches it for instance rather than um capm or anything else so, yeah. yeah um but yeah a really interesting pair of people um father and son team um the story itself is mainly focused on the theory side of it. Uh, at some point, I'd like to do a follow-up about just how those guys have interacted and, and run it because it's a really fascinating piece. But, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think the, the the reason why it's important to read these kind of pieces because the very same way that from the trading community or other people that work outside of technology at banks and asset managers, that <laughs> they, they don't understand technology. You know, it's good cover-up on uh, the Bureau of <laughs> And um, they don't understand the technology, and they don't care to learn about the technology, and that's where we find a lot of hang-ups. Like, when we go out and talk with a portfolio manager that isn't at all tech-savvy, you know, you can see that kind of lack of understanding. I think the same way technologists have to understand kind of some of the theories behind these systems that they're developing, they right? Do. This is one bit from the interview I had with them. It was uh, multiple hours long. It was just before Christmas in Boston. It didn't make it into the piece, but they had really interesting theories about that, exactly. Mm-hmm. And about also um, about tech vendors as well. Um, you know, they're kind of in a weird place because they're a vendor. They license their technology and they sell it, but they mm-hmm. also run money as well. Yeah. Um, Whereas most tech vendors don't do that. So they say that they're very good at building these tools and technologies around theories they don't particularly understand necessarily, but they do it based on... Just make it so complex that they have to keep on uh, coming back to you and freelancing out. (laughs) This is why why they build a better mousetrap, you know? This is the thing. Um, I know, like, yeah, so they didn't make it into the piece, but they were saying exactly that. So, you know, how can you really understand what you're building if you don't run money, like, at the end of the day? Um, You know, all you're doing is mimicking the actions of people doing stuff. You're not actually doing anything that's got any in-depth knowledge to it. Well, and let's now, because let's take this maybe in a different direction, but it's why you, when I've been talking with a lot, we talk with technical companies all the time, um, but when we talk about who they are hiring, there was this big, big push to hire people outside of the finance industry, and there's value in that. to be certain that there is good to get outside perspectives. There's also a danger that if you don't understand the industry that you are serving, you're going to fall off the wagon there, you know? And, and so you have to be able to hire people that are non-technologists that understand the business. And you have to be able to hire outside technologists that don't understand the business, but understand technology. So there's that kind of delicate balancing act, I guess. Right. 
And it does go too far, you're right, sometimes. I mean, just look at Digital Asset, for instance. Like, I, I'm, I'm sure the chap they picked to replace Blythe Masters knows what he's doing, but he was the CEO of Uber. Yeah. You know, like, how is he going to know what a custody giant wants from a blockchain? Exactly. Thing, you know, and gonna... So there has to be a balancing act struck between it. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what they're saying. Like, you know, if you're going to develop technology, you have to understand the theory. If you understand the theory, you have to run money. Yeah. Um, the two don't sort of go without each other. And he said that's one of the reasons why tooling is so bad, one of the reasons why active management doesn't work properly. Um is because it's based on flawed technology, which itself is based on flawed theories, which haven't been thought through in the scientific method rigorously enough, I yeah. guess, over the years, and been challenged. And, you know, that people know that a lot of this optimization doesn't work, but they build the technology around it to force the results through that they think it should produce, rather than allowing it to sort of do the other way around. So, yes, I mean, it's a really fascinating um, interview. I think I'm going to try and do a follow-up piece at some point um, over the course of the year bringing that aspect out of it more, mm-hmm. I think, and maybe a feature, actually. Um, and see and if, if anybody has any thoughts on it, James's uh, email is james.rundle at infopro-digital. I don't want to hear okay. about how, oh, we understand this perfectly. We've got veterans from Morgan Stanley, <laughs> J.B. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. How dare you say that, Rundle? It's not me. Talk to Robert and uh, talk to Richard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, the, again, the article, we'll link to it, obviously, but just in case you aren't clicking, I don't know, whatever. Uh, Rebel Math, uh <laughs> Robert and Richard Michaud, New Frontier Advisors. Probably getting the name wrong again, but good stuff. Give it a read. Um, that's the cover of the, uh, the January show cover for February is going to be? Uh, it is going to be. Um, I was just editing this piece. I can't remember the guy's name, but the, um, <laughs> the Chief Information Officer and Head of Technology at Nordea. So okay, Jerry there we go. That. <laughs> um, uh, something Barzi? Yeah. Mm. Um, good job good editing thanks man Yeah, no, it's, I'm, it's I'm happy to catch you off guard there too <laughs> um, let's see here um, next up fun topic I guess fun topic although I'm not sure we should because we had our reader survey back um, earlier this week and uh, one of the criticisms was that we're too chatty on the podcast which I love that I was laughing it, like it when I saw show, guys. and listen I, I do appreciate <laughs> feedback from viewers and you can't you can't serve everybody right yeah but the whole idea of a podcast is, is exactly that. It's chatting <laughs> about nerdy technology stuff. Where else are you going to go to find good nerdy technology fint- specific to this industry? You know, we're niche, baby, you know? Yes, there are Bloomberg has their whatever the hell it's called. I know there are a couple other things that exist Joe out Rogan's there. Rogan's got his podcast, yeah. The Hack. And yeah. That kind of yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. this is nerdy tech talk and then just regular talk that – Yes, might not concern you, but we want to give you a little something extra or else and you just turn it off after this. Some people only like to listen well, to Alison, our stupid what you do topic. next time is you read that survey, you reply to it saying the podcast is the best damn thing on waters, or so help us God, we're going to start doing the fun bit first. It is funny, like, and it goes to show human nature so much. Everybody kept on saying, like, in that reader survey, everybody kept saying the podcast good. They enjoyed the podcast. This was, like, a, a, a good point for them. That one negative comment, both of us, we, did, we haven't talked about this. No, we it's funny. Yeah. We just both read that and it stuck out to both of us. I was going to say, the same. last <laughs> well, night I was talking with Chris Devazabai on Risk and uh, I was saying, I go, I was laughing. I go, yes, one person said it's too chatty. It's like, that's what a podcast is, man. It's not a webinar. You want a webinar, go search out a webinar. This was it, is was it the talk. same guy who also said that we need more fintech coverage in waters? <laughs> <laughs> Don't cover fintech, apparently, on waters. Don't cover fintech, no. I think he was reading Risk and I just didn't realize <laughs> that. <laughs> but yeah, we value your feedback, guys, so please do. You yeah, know. thank you. Thank you for taking the time out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, all 30 of you, actually, you lazy bastards. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
We had guests on. We had uh, Bill Murphy from Blackstone two weeks ago. Yep. Very, very good conversation about cloud migrations to public or migrations to public cloud. Check that out. And then we had last week uh, Adam Sussman, excuse me, from LiquidNet and talking about the Memex announcement and whether why it's necessary and or lack thereof. You know, it's good conversation. Couldn't really, you know, when when you have guests on, can't really talk about stuff that might be viewed as being a little bit controversial. So we're a little bit behind the ball in this, but this is something that did grind my gears a little bit. But it is funny how much the news cycle changes now, like whether it's a shutdown, whether it's (laughs) the crazy amount of airtime, writing, just breath spent on talking about the the kids at the um, the the march. Yeah, yeah. Just it the the topics change so quickly. Anyway, this is something that did piss me off. So it's a, uh, we're going to try and handle this, I guess, delicately. But um, we're going to start trying to handle it delicately and yeah, to yeah. send. Into, yeah, exactly. So you know how this goes, guys. You've been through this before. I love comedy. I, I've done stand up myself on small shows, never anything big. But it's something that I'm. I, I just I love stand up. It's just such a great outlet. Um, and I, I just, I go out to comedy clubs all the time just to watch. Um, I've done some stand up and I watch, you know, Netflix, HBO, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sensitive about when I read stupid takes on stand up. Now, a couple weeks ago, there was leaked audio from a Louis CK stand up, um, where he makes a joke about, uh, the survivors of the Parkland shooting. Okay, yeah. it's a very, very dark blue joke, yeah. and it's off color to the. You could say it's not violent. So, everybody was outraged. Now, let's first start off by acknowledging that Louis C.K. did something awful. Um, uh, he was uh, uh, exposing himself in front of women. I guess I'm not sure the safe way of saying it on a podcast, <laughs> but you can go look that up yourself if you don't know about it. Um, it's called all of our. Listenership, yeah. lazy bastards. So yeah, you're exactly. probably gonna be okay. So that's fine. Um, and so that so that happened, but there was no charges. This isn't like uh, Bill Cosby where he was arrested or anything. No charge brought against me. Did some awful things, and it ended some uh, people left comedy. Some of the women that uh, that uh, he assaulted was or uh, uh, I'm not sure the, the proper terminology there, but um, some of the women that he exposed himself to yeah. left. The yeah. industry. No, we can call it assault. I think it is. Call that, yes. yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, left the industry, so it was terrible what he did. So you can have an opinion that Louis C.K., sh- you know, I will never spend money on him. But he wasn't arrested. Unless you want him to kill himself, then he's allowed to go out and pursue his comedy career. You don't have to pay to go to see that. That's some, But that's he's allowed to do that unless you want him to kill himself. And then you have to start examining yourself if that's because yeah. that's not exactly Hammurabi's code there, right? You know, it's a, not a, an eye for an eye, right? Yeah. So he is now pursuing his comedy career. I'm not sure if I would ever pay money because I think he's the greatest comedian of this generation. But I'm not sure I would ever give him my money now. And I mean, it's, a, it's one of those tough questions in the modern era, isn't it? Yeah. Do you, how do you separate the art from the artist, right? Exactly. You know, the thing. You know um, it's like... I was never a Woody Allen fan just to begin with. I've never understood the, the cachet of Woody Allen, but I, yeah. 
if I was a Woody Allen fan, you got to ask yourself, you've been watching his movies for a long time. Yeah. You cool with that? How with many Roman Polanski films have you yeah. watched in time? time? Exactly. Thing, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's uh, the, the, will you watch any movies that uh, were uh, produced by, uh, what's his name? The famous Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Which is every movie yeah, exactly. for the last like 20 years. But So, anyway, to bring, so that's your call, but he's allowed to pursue a comedy career. Okay. Leaked audio came out of this uh, stand-up he did. First of all, I hate it whenever I see somebody... When I go to watch a comedy... uh, When I go to watch a show, whenever I see somebody recording, it drives me nuts. Hmm. You can't allow the jokes out. The jokes are... Because one of two things. Either they've finally perfected their stand-up, and this is it. But it'll be released then on Netflix, on HBO, something like that. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just trying out new material. And the stuff that works will work. The stuff that doesn't work will be cast aside. But unlike writers who get to edit and kind of... You're doing this live. You kind of throw it out there. You say, here's a joke. Do you like it? Oh, no. That, that joke I, died miserably. Well, the phrase dying on stage originates yeah. from exactly that practice. Right? Yeah. You know, this is the thing. So. so it drove me insane that everybody started nipping. This isn't even a good joke. It's like... That joke shouldn't have ever been put into the public. He is workshopping it's, it's a, a joke. Yeah, like, it's why do you understand this? I mean, like even people with a basic understanding of comedy must know that people, I mean, maybe I'm biased because the, the incisive office and in, uh, the Infopro office, sorry, in London is right next to the comedy club yeah. um, where a lot of touring... Um, incisive for life. No, sorry. Incisive, yeah, OG incisive. <laughs> um, a lot of touring comedians, very famous comedians, go to workshop their content. Yeah. Um, and people, people like Tom Hanks has been there as a workshop, their routines and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, uh, so, I mean, I was obviously very familiar with that, but yeah, you're right. Like Guys who are going to these workshop shows must know that they're doing this to test it out. Like, yeah. It shouldn't be for public consumption. Like, it's not to be there to be judged. Well, it is there to be judged, but only in that sort of specific yeah. context. Even if you so, think it's yeah. a great joke and you're just trying to say, hey, this is a great joke. You bought the ticket. Allow this artist. Yeah. Listen, he can be a sleazeball artist, but it's still an artist that's up there creating something to make you laugh. It's it's a beautiful so thing. He, he can tell Allow them to do that. Exactly. He can tell whatever goddamn joke he likes, you yeah. fascist. Yeah. I mean, you know, the end of the day. And that's yeah, the other yeah. thing. You don't have to laugh. You don't have to... But then the fact that everybody is now judging this one joke from a workshop, because that's the other thing that Louis C.K. is quite extraordinary as far as a comedian is concerned in that every year he throws out his old material, restarts again. Just every single year it's always fresh. That's why every single year he has a new stand-up that is released on HBO, Netflix, wherever it is, or on his own site is actually how he's been doing of late. So it's January. He's obviously just getting back into the game after going into hiding. And I think that he didn't do a great job of showing contrition uh, for what he did. Yeah. And that's that's another reason why I'm angry with him is that, you know, he kind of just kind of tried to blow it off and no one will notice. I'll just get back into this kind of a thing. Yeah. So, but he is going to go and he's going to make a bunch of jokes. Most of them will suck or will change. But that ha- you have to understand, and this is the reason why this is really, really angers me is if we start going after everybody because they make a dark joke. Listen, I know that you might not like a joke about cancer. My sister has cancer. Hmm. I, it, for whatever reason, it helps me co- uh, yeah. cope. 
9-11 jokes. We work right down uh, the street from uh, where Ground Zero is. For whatever reason, I don't know, man. It just it makes the world not seem so terrorizing by to, to hear a joke about 9-11 that's done well. Some jokes are not done well. Some jokes are yeah. terrible. And some people do it with malice in their heart. And if you make a joke with malice in your heart, that's not a joke. That's just malice. Well, I mean, there's a famous case in the UK. Of, I mean, Americans being precious over comedy is not a new thing. But a uh, comedian in the UK called Frankie Boyle. Have you heard of him? So, I haven't. So he used to be on a show called Mock the Week, which is like a, a weekly news show that um, just like riffed on kind of what happened during the week. And he yeah. was the heart and soul of that show, really. Yeah. Um, it's uh, run by Dara O'Brien. Um and he was just famous for being just the most horrible human being that you've ever met yeah. in your life. Honestly, like, we'd always tell the worst jokes, always skate that edge of it. Uh, but we split up with it, though, because uh, they were like awful jokes and yeah. stuff that probably shouldn't be said. But he always managed to keep it within that line of sort of what is considered to be acceptably decent, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. When he started going over that line, that's when you get the pushback. And that was understandable, because he did it, he was warned about it. Yeah. He did it again, and then he did it again, and he did it again, because he just liked, that's who he was. That's like, who that's was. Thing. Um, and eventually he got kicked off the show, and you know, the show became a shell of itself and yeah. everything else. But and then you know his uh, his live show I think suffered as well because people were just like, well, like, you did go too far on that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's an appropriate response. Like over time, saying, yeah, mess mate, every single show you are going too and far. And if you on this, want to so, make yeah. money, this yeah. our thing is, listen, we're all masters to corporate masters. We're we're all subservient to corporate masters, right? Yeah. If you are told. There is a line. You cross that line, you're going to get fired. Yeah. Well, do you like making that money? You can be a free, independent artist. You can go do stand-up anywhere, yeah. but then you might not get the movies. You just, might just not, not get the, the TV yeah. shows. You <laughs> might not get the BBC gig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, so there are lines, and that's why I like comedy clubs, because comedy clubs, there are no lines. The so crowd sad. is the line. The crowd will let you know. Did I do a good job yeah. or did I do a terrible did job? Did I go too far? Was yeah. I just being an arsehole that day? Yeah. Anything else? And this is the thing, like with Louis C.K. and with this whole stupid uproar that's come out about it, it's like you've probably heard worse among your friends at the bar. Like, but how many of your friends have made off college jokes yeah. about school shootings or about the Holocaust or yeah. about like? And I'm sure they're probably. I never. Um, it's like, well, we hang with different friends and it's all. But yeah, but yes, must we, be a it's, saint. it's well done. So I mean, like you know, again, like, people take. It helps to make the world that is a yeah. dark, cold place. It helps some of us to make jokes about this it's, again. It's the centerpiece of the British yeah. psyche is laughing at things that scare you and you don't like because yeah. it makes it bearable and passable. Yeah. But again, like if this hadn't been Louis C.K., if this had just been an aspiring up-and-coming, uh, you know, stand-up yeah. show or something, and he said this and someone released it, everyone would like, well, that was a bit, like, come yeah. on, a bit too soon. Well, no one would have so listened. No one would have cared about it. It's, no it's thing. Cared about it. Everybody yeah. was pissed off. I, I think what really happened here was everybody was pissed off that Louis C.K. is cr- continuing his career. They yeah. thought, oh, well, this will end his career. It's like, again, do you want this man to hang himself, to kill himself? Otherwise, he's allowed to go out and continue his career. You don't have to buy a ticket. You yeah. don't have to watch show. I might not ever buy a ticket again to a Louis C.K. stand I'm not sure. He is a great comedian. So I, I'm not 100% sure how I kind of feel. But and the other thing, too, is because this all happened in kind of a row. Kevin Hart was supposed to host the Oscars. Yeah. And he made homophobic jokes, like, in the early 2000s, um, which he apologized for later on because it came up back then. He apologized for later on because he said that his views and stuff like that have changed. And then all of a sudden he gets announced for the 
for the Oscars, and all of a sudden, this sea of this gets brought up again. He's like, "I'm not going to apologize. I, I did apologize back then, mm-hmm. but my, my my thoughts have changed on this." I, and that's the other thing: is are you not allowed to have? Are you not allowed? Do we not allow any room for growth in a human being, or is it yeah. you said that once? To hell with you. You're not allowed to do anything good. And here's the other thing. Chris Rock also took it on the chin because there was a great documentary. A lot of people haven't seen it. It is a an outstanding documentary. It's Jerry Seinfeld, Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock, and Louis C.K. And again, the Louis C.K. connection comes in prevalent here. But they talk about comedy and just how their art form works and you know just how they kind of view it. And they talk about using the N-word, okay? And Chris Rock uses it a lot. So too does Louis C.K. And they discuss why they use it, why Chris Rock doesn't have a problem with Louis C.K. using it. And they have discussion. And it's a documentary. And, you know, because Ricky Gervais and uh, Seinfeld are like, we would never use that word. And so they have a good intellectual discussion. This little clip from this documentary from like the mid-2000s, something like that, comes out. Everybody's like... Chris Rock should be ashamed of himself for for saying it's okay for Louis C.K. to have in this yeah. world of social justice. Is are they not allowed to have their own art form? Are they not allowed to have their own opinions and not have to be dragged down through the streets because you didn't like what they said? I mean, literally, this is this is my problem with yeah, as a speaking as a someone with very strong left wing politics yeah. ingrained in from since childhood. Um, this is my problem with it right now, and it's not about Me Too. Like, Me Too set a precedent for a lot of this, and I think enabled a lot of this. Um, that had a very specific, very important point to make about um, the way women are treated in modern society, right? right? But it did also open the door for a lot of people to now use that as a... To combine it with the way that social media is always going, which is like kind of, you know, witch hunt and a mob hunt, yeah. that kind of thing at the end of the day, and combine those two things and say... This is the socially acceptable narrative that we have, and you have deviated from that, and therefore you are going to pay for it. You're right. Um, yeah. You know, a good example being uh, James Gunn, as we were talking about before the podcast, before we started recording, who directed the Guardians of the Galaxy films, and made like a bunch of really nasty jokes on Twitter. Like, yeah, they weren't very pleasant. Um, but like, you know, he just he turned around and was like, yeah, like I mean, you know, I made those years ago. Why the hell is this being dragged Why up and raised about this now? And I just find it so baffling that we are picking up what people have said years ago, you're taking clips out of context. And actually, Kamala Harris has been really good at this, at pointing out kind of uh, a lot of news articles have run stories about her appearance in talk shows. She's like, actually, no, this is only like two-thirds of the clip and not three-thirds of the clip and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, a few other guys have tried to fight back into yeah. this as well. But there is a horrible thought police aspect to what's yes. going on right now where if you do not conform to this, uh, I guess, ostensibly kind of I don't want to say neoliberal because that's one thing, but like liberal, uh, I guess, kind of centric view of the world, then you are scum and therefore you have no platform and you have no right to exist or to publicize those beliefs. And that, my friend, is fascism. In in no other word. If if comedy has to be inclusive, then comedy doesn't exist anyway. Comedy has to be allowed to free roam and you don't have to... The other thing is... Not everybody has to conform to what you believe no. is a good joke. I mean, there are lines. There have to be lines. There, 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 you know, of course. course. There has to be Again, lines when you make a joke in malice, yeah. there's, that's, that's where the line is, right? It's, but otherwise, you just kind of make a joke. It's a dark joke. It's, 
but you're not going to, the crowd will decide what is and is not funny, but allow comedians to have the freedom to, in a comedy club, make the joke and have you be the test subjects. Otherwise, if every, if, if all I ever handed in was the copy and it was published without any sort of edit. Well, we'd be hearing about what uh, bumblebees, <laughs> what bees do. Anyways, inside joke there. Um, but there's, it would be embarrassing for me if, yeah. if my, I, I do a good job of handing clean copy, but the editing process is important. But what you do at work, I'm sure that there are filters that allow you to prevent, hopefully, uh, from massive <laughs> mistakes happening, stuff like that. For more, see my Twitter account. Yeah, exactly. Um uh, comedians, that is their editor. Their editors are the uh, people the that are in the audience mm-hmm. at that moment. It's not to be spread across Twitter, to be judged across. And if they made a bad joke in the past, again, did they do it with malice in their heart? Are they still? Are they? Have they become this horrible anti? You know, do they hate all gay people? Guys? Then yeah, yeah. That, let's let's get rid of them. But that's not what this was with Kevin Hart. That's not what you know. Chris Rock is friends with Louis C.K. We're trying to tell him who, what he's allowed to say, and you know they're friends, man. It's just well, it allow them a, to have that. It has such a pernicious effect as well, though, because if then if you turn around and you're having a beer or something with a group of people on a table, and even if you bring up this conversation we're having now, like Louis C.K. or something, or even not even relate to this conversation, just oh, did you see that uh, stand at the end of the day? You're gonna get some random term goes, oh, I can't believe you, like after what yeah. he did, you can't believe your. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for that you're kind of uh, endorsing, you're endorsing him, yeah. you're propping it up by watching it. Um, and it's good, like, again, it's good that we're having some of the discussions, but no, once helpful. you turn into yeah. thought police, yeah. once you say you can't make that joke because I find it offensive, yeah. well, go f- okay? Yeah, grow thick skin. Like, I'm sorry, you, did you buy a ticket? Were you in the audience right then? Did you buy a ticket? Yeah. Oh, you didn't. You listened to it on Twitter? Cool. Um... You know, it's like when people go to see a Louis C.K. stand-up, it's like, have you... His is all about shock. It's all dark comedy. He's yeah. a dark individual. And that's why some of us who don't... he's You could tell he's a depressed individual. Yeah. And that's why some of us who have depression flock to comedy. Because oh, we yeah. like to hear half the audience dark sort of, jokes. Half the audience leaves feeling comforted. Half the yeah. audience leaves thinking about their life choices and wanting a hug from their mum. You know, exactly. Like, <laughs> but that's it. You have a right to not listen. But the First Amendment in this country yeah. does allow for these things to happen. And yes, you could say, well, then the First Amendment allows it to be thrown out on Twitter. Yes, it does. But even though there are copyright infringements, I'm sure somewhere in there. Um, but what you don't do is you don't deny someone that First Amendment by then ganging up to the point where they have to yeah. retire from public life and do everything else. Let's so create mobs and let's, yeah. let's drag this person through the street. It's not the way that civilized society or civilized discourse yeah. works and it's at the end of the day it may not be a good joke it may not be a very tasteful joke but it's yeah. a f-ing joke it's like a you know joke. i mean just get on with it and live your life the guy's not making a political point about you know the survivors of school shootings he's making a joke that he's trying on a crowd yeah probably to see if he's going to have this exact kind of reaction or not you yeah. know? i mean it's you know arguably it's the best workshop that these kids ever done but you know don't make that joke yeah exactly <laughs> so, now it's all <laughs> There we go. All right. So, yes, yeah, so we, we went on. Again, it's something I'm just I'm very, very passionate about. So, yes, we did uh, kind of go on. But hopefully 
you've already well, checked yeah, out. I mean, do you want to hear us talk about this? Or do you want to hear us talk about initial margin deadlines and Markovic's plus 33? I mean, come on. Like, we already gave you 15 minutes of that stuff. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, we have a, an actual guest, so you don't have to worry about uh, another uh, scolding uh, from us uh, no, next week. Uh, we actually... I do have an apology to make, actually, before we finish as well. Yes. Which is, and a shout-out for a magazine that's not Waters. Uh, go to Markets Media, read the piece they did on Hyannis Port Research, because I promised Mark Dowd months ago that I would do that piece and I completely forgot about it so apologies Mark if you're listening um, go read the Markets Media piece it's very good Markets so. Media who wrote it do you remember uh, not Rob Daly not Rob Daly <laughs> um, that's the only prayer yeah but uh, alright well, I guess go I haven't even yeah. read it yet so uh, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to link to that one just so you no, know we're not going to. go find it yourselves yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alright anyway we'll be back next week with the guests uh, or hopefully with the guests uh, should nothing fall through yep um, otherwise, yeah, we'll uh, see you uh, next week. Enjoy the weekend. Cheers.